Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in the weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is Africa, but not just Africa. This is in the Daily Mail. Three million people could die from coronavirus in Africa unless the spread is contained, UN report warns. As World Health Organization officials say the continent could be the next COVID-19 epicenter. We're going to get into the World Health Organization big time. Africa could see anywhere between 300,000 and 3.3 million deaths due to coronavirus, according to the UN Economic Commission for Africa. It warned that if the continent does not implement measures to prevent the spread of the virus, then total infections could spiral out of control and reach 1.2 billion. But if intense social distancing measures are implemented, the number of total infections could drop to 122 million by the end of the pandemic. The first confirmed COVID-19 case in Africa was reported in Egypt on February 14th, and since then there have been more than 18,000 confirmed cases. Algeria has the most COVID-19-related deaths in Africa, with 348, with Egypt, Morocco and South Africa, the next hardest-hit countries. The UN projections, the World Health Organization is an agency of the UN, are based on a host of pre-existing research, including statistics and modelling from Imperial College London. I'll come back to that in a minute. A separate study from a team of African researchers has found that more than 16 million Africans will likely be infected by the end of June. Their own mathematical model predicts more than 20,000 people on the continent will lose their lives to COVID-19 during the next 10 weeks alone. However, the scientists warn these figures have a wide range depending on various factors taken into account when conducting the study. The lower boundary for the total infections by the end of June 2020 is 2.7 million, while the upper boundary could be as high as 98.4 million. What the actual number will be depends on how the continent responds to the outbreak, and the African researchers are now in the process of using statistical models to see how effective different interventions will be. The lowest and highest reaches of the range would lead to a corresponding death toll of around 3,500 and 126,000 people, respectively by June 30th, 2020. Today, World Health Organization officials also stated Africa could become the next epicenter of the global pandemic unless the spread of the virus is contained. How on earth, I wonder, did they propose to do that? Combating the disease will be complicated by the fact that 36% of Africans have no access to household washing facilities and the continent couched as 1.8 hospital beds per 1,000 people. In comparison, France has 5.98 beds per 1,000 people. United Nations experts warn the rate of increase is similar to European countries that have been ravaged by COVID-19 and the World Health Organization has today stated Africa could become the next epicenter of the pandemic. Both pieces of research were published to address a dearth of literature examining how Africa would deal with a novel coronavirus. The UN report says poverty, crowded urban conditions and widespread health problems make Africa particularly susceptible to the virus. Of all the continents, Africa has the highest prevalence of certain underlying conditions like tuberculosis, HIV and AIDS. It reads... HIV or AIDS. According to the research, Northern Africa will be hit hardest to the continent's five sub-regions over the next couple of months with a predicted 8.5 million cases by June. However, under the worst-case scenario, this could skyrocket to more than 54 million cases. The researchers created an equation that predicts how COVID-19 will spread throughout Africa based on current infection levels and data from all around the world with a specific focus on China and Italy. Well, as I explained in episode 69, the current data is fundamentally flawed, and so the equation must be fundamentally flawed. I explain why that is in episode 69. Factors that can influence the spread of infection include time since first reported case, rate of disease expansion, urbanicity, living standard, household size, population age structure, access to healthcare, quality of healthcare, and the prevalence of HIV and asthma, according to the study led by Tom Achoki of the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Djibouti, a country with a high population density, is predicted to be the African nation with most infectious per capita. 
The study expects 32.8 people per 1,000 in the East African nation to be infected. Swaziland, 26.8, Morocco, 11.97, Algeria, 9.8, and Cote d'Ivoire, 6.65, Ivory Coast. Make up the five countries with the most predicted infections per capita. Researchers say the more urbanised and wealthier countries will experience a faster growth of the epidemic. Countries such as Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, South Africa and Kenya were singled out as fitting this criteria. Mm -hmm. Closeness between residents and a geographic proximity to some of the European countries at the epicentre of the global outbreak put these nations most at risk. But the researchers add some of these countries also have higher living standards and better health system than most countries in the region and are well equipped to cope with an influx of cases. However, less urbanised countries such as Angola, Botswana and Mozambique are poorly connected and infection spread is therefore likely to be limited. However, if the virus does spread in these countries, they are likely to be harder hit. The researchers explain as the epidemic grows, many of these countries are projected to experience increases in cumulative infections that are likely to overwhelm their health system. As healthcare systems struggle to cope, suitable critical care cannot be administered and the death rate of COVID-19 patients increases. Most deaths will be recorded in the Northern Africa sub-region, while Southern and Western Africa are expected to experience a comparable death toll, the scientists add. Deaths in the Eastern Africa sub-region are expected to be the lowest of the sub-regions in Africa. Algeria, Morocco, South Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Tunisia and Ivory Coast are expected to be the countries with the largest loss of life. According to the UN report, the issues in Africa extend beyond the horrific loss of life. It warns of severe economic pain across Africa with the growth contracting 2.6% in the worst case scenario and 27 million people pushed into extreme poverty. Which, as I've said before many times, is the plan for the world. People pushed into extreme poverty. The World Bank has said sub-Saharan Africa could fall into its first recession in a quarter of a century. Collapsed businesses may never recover, the new report said. Without a rapid response, governments risk losing control and facing unrest. Nearly 20 European and African leaders called this week for an immediate moratorium on all African debt payments, public and private, till the pandemic is over, as well as billions in immediate financial help so countries can focus on fighting the virus. The UN report said the continent has no fiscal space to deal with shocks from the pandemic. It recommended a complete temporary debt standstill for two years for all African countries, low and middle income included. The report comes days before African officials launch a new initiative to dramatically accelerate testing for the new virus. More than a million tests are being rolled out starting next week to address a major gap in assessing the true number of cases. It is possible that 15 million tests will be required in Africa over the next three months. The head of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, John Nkengasong, told reporters on Thursday. Africa has suffered in the global competition for badly needed medical equipment, but in recent days created a continental platform so its 54 countries can team up to bulk buy items at more reasonable prices. One major shipment of equipment, including more than 400 ventilators, arrived this week for sharing among all 54 countries. There's another couple of sections here. And there's another Mm. section here. Africa could be the next coronavirus epicenter. Who warns World Health Organization? The World Health Organization has warned that Africa could become the next epicenter of a coronavirus outbreak. Last week, the continent experienced a sharp rise in reported cases and there has now been more than 18,000 confirmed cases and almost 1,000 fatalities. The current rate is far below the European citizen countries, but experts warn Africa could merely be a couple of weeks behind the curve with the rapid ascension in cases predicted. The WHO says the virus appears to be spreading away from African capitals. Ventilators are also a cause of concern for the continent, as it is expected demand will far outstrip supply as healthcare facilities become inundated with COVID-19 patients. Africa has suffered in the global competition for badly needed medical equipment, but in recent days created a continental platform so its 54 countries can team up to buy items at more reasonable prices. One major shipment of equipment, including more than 400 ventilators, rather than for sharing among all 54 countries. Testing is also being increased dramatically in Africa. More than a million tests are being rolled out starting next week to address a major gap in assessing the true number of cases. It is possible that 15 million tests will be required in Africa over the next three months to head the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 
It is possible that 15 million tests will be required in Africa over the next three months. The head of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, John Nkegosong, told reporters on Thursday. Well, of course, Africa's always had bad sanitation, poor or no access to clean drinking water. As a brilliant organization called the Thirst Project has pointed out, they do some great work in getting clean drinking water to people in Africa. Africans have had limitations growing food, poor quality of life, poor health. And people like Bill Gates have exploited the limitations of Africa food, even though it could be more abundant than it is, with his genetically modified food, which is really designed, as I've talked about before, to genetically modify us. This is an article from November 2019 in The Guardian. Polio outbreaks in Africa. Polio outbreaks in Africa caused by mutation of strain in vaccine. New cases of polio linked to the oral vaccine have been reported in four African countries and more children are now being paralysed by vaccine-derived viruses than those infected by viruses in the wild, according to global health numbers. The World Health Organization and partners identified nine new cases caused by the vaccine in Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic and Angola last week at the time of the article. Along with seven other African countries with outbreaks, cases have also been reported in Asia. In Afghanistan and Pakistan, polio remains endemic, and in Pakistan, officials have been accused of covering up vaccine-related cases. Polio, a highly infectious disease that spreads through contaminated water or food, usually affects children under five, with around one in 200 infections resulting in paralysis. Of those paralyzed, five to 10% die due to crippled breathing muscles. He reports that as long as a single child remains infected, all children are at risk of contracting the disease. More than 95% of the population needs to be immunized for polio to fully be eradicated, so they say. In developing countries, the oral vaccine is used due to its low cost and accessibility, needing only two drops per dose. In Western countries, a more expensive injectable version of the vaccine, which contains an inactivated virus incapable of causing the disease, is used as a preventative. The onset has been caused by a type 2 virus containing the vaccine. Type 2 is a wild virus that was eliminated years ago, but in rare cases, the live virus in oral polio vaccines can mutate into a form capable of igniting new outbreaks of the disease. Just last week, donors pledged $2.6 billion, £2 billion, to combat polio as part of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, which formed in 1988 with the goal of eradicating the disease by 2000. According to the WHO, wild polio virus cases have fallen by more than 99% since 1988, from 350,000 in more than 125 endemic countries to 33 reported cases in 2018. But despite this progress, numerous deadlines have been missed since the 1988 pledge. We need to take those figures with a massive pinch of salt for reasons I'm going to explain shortly. A report released earlier this month by the Independent Monitoring Board, which independently assesses the GPEI's work and progress toward polio eradication, claimed that the vaccine-derived virus was causing an uncontrolled outbreak in West Africa. The report found the strategy is already failing badly on the goal of reducing and ultimately eliminating vaccine-derived polio viruses and argued that new strategies are needed to tackle the polio epidemic. Dr. Pascal Makanda, head of the WHO's polio eradication programme, said the latest outbreak was directly linked to low vaccination rates. The rise in vaccine-derived polio cases is caused by a mutated form of the disease found in faecal matter that targets children who have not been vaccinated, he said. What we must do is extend the coverage of immunisation so that polio can no longer continue to survive, said Makanda. Dr Edward Parker at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine said efforts to develop more stable polio vaccines by scientists were progressing. If they proved to be safe and effective in regions still affected by polio, these vaccines could be a key breakthrough in finally consigning this disease to the history books. Now, I came across a very interesting documentary about the World Health Organization, and it's called Trust Who. It's available on Amazon Prime, 
the production company that made Trust 2, is making a documentary about coronavirus. The documentary Trust 2 was made in 2018, so it's a recent documentary, or it was at least came out in 2018. And it's brilliant in the way it exposes the World Health Organization. Biggest funder of the World Health Organization, Bill Gates, who is now all over the place pushing for vaccines and talking about the pandemic. He's very much like George Soros. And a rule of thumb when you look at world events is if Bill Gates is not involved, George Soros will be. And Bill Gates is massively involved in this. And World Health Organization was created by the Rockefellers on behalf of the Rothschild, on behalf of the cop which runs the world, which I talk about in episode 59, part 2. It was created in 1948, and the current head of the World Health Organization, a guy called Ted Ross, is infamous for covering up cholera epidemics in Ethiopia in 2006, 2009, and 2011. Just the guy you want at this time to be running the World Health Organization. And there were many explosive facts revealed by this documentary about the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization attends, or spokespeople from the organization attend, private conferences organized by the pharmaceutical industry regularly. And there was a quint from a guy called Wolfgang Rodarg, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe Health Committee. And he says, all the business deals that have been prepared between individual countries and their pharmaceutical companies were about to be triggered by the World Health Organization. This was at the time of the documentary being made. The relevant contracts were mostly confidential and the companies insisted they should never be published. The WHO have no idea about the severity of illness and potential number of deaths. This was another separate quote. They have to depend on scientists and the scientists are allocated to them by the countries and organizations that finance the WHO in this today's case, Bill Gates, and many of them give advice and make decisions that benefit the pharmaceutical industry. And a guy called Albert Osterhaus, a veterinarian and virologist who lost his voting right on the Dutch Health Commission because of conflicts of interest and he had shares in a pharmaceutical company. Chairman of European Scientific Working Group on Influenza, which is funded by pharmaceutical companies. He was couching it in terms of the way it should be done this is why it should happen but basically he said that he said i can tell you now that there is no scientific meeting nowadays that is not sponsored by the pharmaceutical companies the documentary talks about swine flu and this may not seem to be very relevant to now directly but it is swine flu h1n1 was said to be a pandemic that came and went i remember it at the time and i remember noting the massive holes in the official story much like now of course you had mainstream media reports parroting the official line from the world health organization and it was estimated that it would affect two billion people and even by official figures it affected 258 people in germany in 2009 far fewer than a normal flu outbreak according to a mainstream media report and a quote from the documentary Chances are you didn't have swine flu or flu at all, even if you were diagnosed as probable. Of course, the diagnosis was merely on symptoms, as it is now with COVID-19. It also came out in this documentary, how about this, that during the time of swine flu, what we were told was swine flu, I mean, who knows, that the definition of a pandemic was changed and the old criteria was deleted from the World Health Organization website the severity and number of deaths under the old criteria would have prevented pandemic status. 
So the World Health Organization wants to sell the idea of a pandemic, and so it changes the criteria of a pandemic, and then declares that there is one. One of the central people involved in the World Health Organization at that time, one of the fundamental people, he says in the documentary, at a meeting between the Director General and prospective vaccine manufacturers, most of our colleagues were excluded. Me too. I was head of a department and one of the Director General's closest associates. On that specific day, I went down to the conference room and the person at the door said, sorry, this is a private meeting. And that is the classic structure of compartmentalization which any organisation operates with. Tiny few who run the organisation know how everything fits together and why this is happening, why that's happening, while everyone else only knows a certain amount. And you can be very high in even organisations like the military, government, whatever, without really knowing why things are happening. The World Health Organisation Working Group on Swine Flu consisted of 13 external consultants, two of which declare conflicts of interest and one of which is Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London, who declares conflicts of interest, consultancy fees from three pharmaceutical organisations, two of which at least, if not all three, manufactured swine flu vaccines and medications, and two of which were fundamental to the swine flu vaccination, GlaxoSmithKline, Baxter and Roche. R-O-C-H-E. Professor Neil Ferguson was on television at the time talking about the swine flu pandemic. Professor Neil Ferguson, whose team at Imperial College London came up with computer models, ludicrous computer models, about the swine flu pandemic. The same Professor Neil Ferguson, whose team at Imperial College London came up with ludicrous computer models about COVID-19 and who is commenting now on COVID-19 and who is fundamentally connected through funding at least, and his team, his division in the university, receives funding from Bill Gates, who is pushing for vaccination. Professor Chris Whitty, who's the guy in the long black coat who you see on the news in Britain advising government and British public, he took funding of £40 million from Bill Gates in 2008 for malaria research in Africa. All these people are involved now over COVID-19. These people that have spontaneously arrived on the scene to save us and advise the British public what to do and think over COVID-19. Goodness me, well, would we be without them? Not in lockdown, that's for certain. And British businesses would still exist that don't know. Computer models by Professor Neil Ferguson have led to the lockdown, which has led to the destruction of British businesses and impacting the economy, closing the economy in Britain. The computer model was the only reason the lockdown happened in Britain by the very same guy who declared conflicts of interest in 2009 over swine flu and was doing then what he's doing now over COVID-19 with his fundamental connection to Bill Gates pushing for a vaccine. I don't believe for a second that these characters have spontaneously arrived on the scene and been so central in Britain to including being widely quoted in the media and Chris Whitty being on the news every night and day. I don't believe that's spontaneous at all. It also came out in the documentary that Germany, Italy, France and the UK concluded secret agreements with pharmaceutical companies before the swine flu outbreak to purchase vaccines, but only if the World Health Organization issued a pandemic level six alert. 
And as I said earlier, the criteria for a pandemic was changed to allow for it to be called a pandemic. And patents were applied for swine flu vaccines before the swine flu outbreak by GlaxoSmithKline, one of the companies Professor Ferguson was connected to, as I said, and Novartis. I remember that coming out at the time about the patents, and it was interesting. German Velasquez, former WHO director and general secretary for public health, intellectual property and medication, said in the documentary, I don't know anyone at the WHO that had themselves vaccinated during the swine flu epidemic. They just did everything they could to make sure that everybody else did. And we're told that vaccines only work with herd immunity. Don't necessarily agree with that myself, but that's what we're told. And if they were intent on ensuring the safety of people, then they would, by that criteria, have to get themselves vaccinated. They didn't. And one of the things that you realise when you watch the documentary, which I thoroughly recommend, is the scale of psychopathy from those in powerful positions at the World Health Organization, even as recent as 2018, when the documentary was released. A year later, we're told COVID-19 broke out. So you get an idea of the kind of people who were running it, including the current head, Ted Ross, who I mentioned earlier. The documentary pointed out a document, which was a report of the SAGE Working Group on Vaccine Hesitancy in October 2014. And part of the document is the working group, which I mentioned earlier, of the World Health Organization, giving advice on how to counter what the document called vaccine hesitancy. In other words, people who've got a mind of their own and have done their own research and decided they don't want vaccines or they're questioning vaccines. And it was basically advising how to persuade people and organisations to change behaviour, as they say in the document. And it says this, there's some bullet points, and they say this. All that really matters is the power of the story. Consumers care about benefits, not supporting facts. Brand equals product plus compelling story. Reason leads to conclusions, while emotion leads to action. I.e. change comes from feelings, not facts. It is important to win the hearts, minds, and now voice. Due to social media, consumers have a mouthpiece and a large portion of media consumption is media generated by other consumers. The rise of social media has benefits and risks. You can share information on a massive scale at zero cost, but there is less control. Well, there's more control now, especially during COVID-19, because people are being censored, especially if they have a wide audience, which is why they're now having to find alternative platforms like BitChute and other to get the information out. On Stellar, Mind, those are other platforms people are using to counter the censorship of Silicon Valley. And they've basically said they're censoring anything counter to the official narrative over COVID-19. And they are censoring anything counter to the World Health Organization narrative, which is Bill Gates. The bullet points continue. Consumers believe more in messages from other consumers than from big institutions. It is important to find the intersection of brand topics, what the brand wants to talk about, and audience interests, what existing and desired audiences care about. Consumers' rationale for decisions may not reflect the true motivation, e.g. give fact-based reasons, but emotional reasons may have in fact driven the behaviour. It is impossible to please all consumers and some will not like you. One big idea needs to drive the entire communication strategy. Only one or two messages can be communicated, the rest must be sacrificed. Communication is increasingly about dialogue back and forth in the context of social media. And the last one, a communication brief includes competitive content landscape. 
these organizations, they love their ridiculously worded phrases and statements, don't they? Target consumer, brand opportunity, communication task, core insight, core essence, functional benefit, emotional benefit, meaningful product truth, brand personality, obtainable brand proposition, key performance indicators, effective communication strategies are not simple. All those terms and phrases, why not just say what you mean? But of course, if you do that, then it doesn't quite work as well. So that's the World Health Organization advising how to overcome vaccine hesitancy, as they call it. And what they say is it's about emotion and a compelling story rather than fact when they are supposed to be an organization which oversees world health. They're an organization which advises on health policy on behalf of cult and... Talking of psychopathy, what came out in the documentary also was about Fukushima and Chernobyl. And Dr. Akira Suganoya, mayor and director of the Matsumoto boarding school, pointed out at the time of Chernobyl that iodine tablets were necessary for affected people and children. World Health Organization recommendations for issuing iodine were revised in 1999 under supervision from British scientist Keith Barrostock, former WHO employee. Baverstock published two papers in the science journal Nature, one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world, with a team in Belarus about thyroid cancer as a result of Chernobyl in 1986. After publication, the WHO asked Baverstock to withdraw the paper from Nature. He didn't, to his credit, but he was told to, and he was told his career would be affected if he didn't, which it wasn't in the end. And Gregory Hartle, Gregory Hartless, as he should be called, World Health Organization spokesman, discouraged people from taking iodine tablets. It also comes out of the documentary that the World Health Organization works with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And the documentary points out that political leaders and politicians were covering up the health effects of Chernobyl. And then it talks about Fukushima. And it says, 42% of children affected by Fukushima displayed nodules or cysts on the thyroid glands in the neck, which is connected to cancer. And children die young as a result. Professor Yamashita, who was a medical scientist at the WHO's REMPAN network, Radiation Emergency Medical Preparedness and Assistance Network, and he played down the effects of radiation on children in such an incredible way. And Alison Katz, NGO, Independent World Health Organization, and she has an independent organization challenging the World Health Organization. She, for seven years, was in front of the World Health Organization headquarters, Geneva. Japanese people reporting serious health effects in children from Fukushima. She was ignored by the World Health Organization. And there was a New York Academy of Science book called Consequences and Catastrophe for People and the Environment. And it estimated 985,000 deaths worldwide and 2004 cancers. And the establishment said 50 deaths and 4,000 cancers as a final total. The establishment said 50 deaths and 4,000 cancers is a final total. And Alison Katz also points out that the World Health Organization never considered any other health effect other than cancer. And Gregory Hartle, this psychopath I mentioned just now, says the New York Academy of Science repudiated, in other words, rejected the book about Chernobyl. But the presenter of the documentary contacts the editor of the Academy and they deny that claim. Lies, lies and more lies. That's the story of this documentary. And it's the story of COVID-19, which is not a surprise because World Health Organization, i.e. Bill Gates, is fundamentally involved with COVID-19 in terms of pushing for a vaccine and talking about it. And the next subject this week is Facebook. This is in the New York Post. 
Facebook's fact-checkers are the real fake news after censoring post story. Way back on February 23rd, the Post ran an opinion piece by Stephen Mosher saying that we could not trust China's story about the origins of COVID-19. He argued that the virus might, might have jumped to the human population thanks to errors at a Chinese laboratory in Wuhan rather than via that city's now notorious wet market. The piece was widely read online until Facebook stepped in. The social media giant's fact-checkers decided this was not a valid opinion. If you tried to share Moshe's column on Facebook, the social network stuck a false information alert on top, saying that finding was checked by independent fact-checkers and preventing your friends from clicking to connect to the original article to see for themselves. Again, this was an opinion column, not a news report. Moshe cited a host of suggestive facts, including urgent government directives, the sudden trip of China's top bio-war expert to Wuhan, and that nation's shoddy record of lab safety, as well as gaping holes in the wet market explanation, such as the fact that the market in question does not sell bats, the animal from which the bug supposedly jumped. How exactly did Facebook determine that Moshe's reasoned arguments constituted false information? Well, in fact, it didn't so determine. Rather, it was an independent fact-checker. And who did this fact-checker rely on for their opinion? As reporter Cheryl Atkinson notes, one expert consulted had a clear conflict of interest. She has regularly worked with Wuhan's researchers and even done her own experiments there. Danielle E. Anderson, assistant professor at Duke NUS Medical School in Singapore, personally attested to the lab's strict control and containment measures. Anderson did admit, however, that Moshe was correct when he mentioned that SARS did twice escape a Beijing research lab in 2004. The other expert who weighed in noted in her objection, any responsible government would strengthen safety and security procedures in high containment labs that will and should be working with a novel coronavirus to develop countermeasures and diagnostics. Well, yes, any responsible government would, because these medical researchers took offence that someone was question the Wuhan lab's protocols, Facebook decided you were not allowed to speculate online. Nearly two months later, of course, Moshe is not alone in his opinion. Well, it's not because the medical researchers took offence, it's because Facebook is a censorship operation. It's one of the reasons it was created. Brought about the censorship of Silicon Valley, which is censorship on a historic level in episode 25. The article goes on. Nearly two months later, of course, Moshe is not alone in his opinion. Hard news in the form of State Department cables from January 2008 show that the US government has long-standing grave concerns about safety protocols at the Wuhan lab, China's only level 4 biohazard laboratory. And multiple outlets, including Fox News and the Washington Post, report that top US national security officials are increasingly of the belief that the bug came from that lab. First of all, they've got to prove the existence of the virus. The New York Post has asked for weeks to get Facebook to unblock the Moshe article. On Friday, the social network finally did so, though without acknowledging that it had been wrong all along. As a significant source of news for much of the world's population, Facebook has a clear responsibility to do better. If it's going to block false information, it needs better fact-checkers and more people watching over those watchmen. When your defence against fake news or it kills free discretion, your system is worse than no defence at all. Well, if COVID-19 is a bioweapon, where are the dead bodies? The Wuhan lab is a level 4 containment laboratory containing the most deadly and virulent pathogens and infectious agents. And if one of those got out, there would not be the situation there is, even accepting there is a virus, where most people who contract the virus have mild symptoms or no symptoms. People who contract it will be dead, or at least very close to death. There will be no need to fix the figures in the pathetically ludicrous way that they are, which I talk about in episode 69 and it's getting more pathetic by the day. The excess mortality would be far higher. Hospitals would not be empty with doctors and nurses filming dance routines. 
they really would be war zone hospitals. They really would be overrun. Fact checkers are merely PR operations for the official narrative, just like the mainstream media is. The disinformation has really been stepped up to a new level with COVID-19. Disinform artists, con artists, are front people for the official establishment narrative on everything. And they appear to be credible, but when you actually look at the claims, you can take them apart. And I've done it myself recently, but one of their claims says all about the PCR test. So it's tests for genetic material, not a virus. It's important to understand the test fully to understand the process which led to the alleged COVID-19 outbreak. People in late 2019 showed signs of flu-like symptoms by a wet market of creatures like insects and bats, etc., which could be signs of food poisoning. And they showed signs of pneumonia in Wuhan, China, which is notorious for toxic polluted air to the point where Chinese people have protested. And swabs were taken, blood samples, but not really conclusive. And they then took this bronchoalveolar lavage, or lung fluid to you and me, which is obviously present in people suffering from pneumonia or lung problems, and sequenced what was genetic material and compared it to the SARS virus and noted that the genetic material, which can be there from a wide variety of different causes, was just under 80% similar to the SARS virus. But humans are in the top 90% similar to chimpanzees, while obviously being very different. Well, most people anyway. At no point was the virus isolated from the rest of the genetic material and purified and shown to be demonstrably different from the genetic material. The genetic material was sequenced and believed to be very similar, but a new strain of coronavirus very similar to SARS, and was given the name SARS-CoV-2, which we're told causes COVID-19. To prove an infectious agent is causing a disease, in other words, SARS-CoV-2 is causing COVID-19, there is a set of criteria known as Koch's postulates, after Robert Koch, who came up with them in towards the end of the 1800s. These have been used since... 1890 to prove infectious agents cause a disease which state thus microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease but should not be found in healthy organisms one the microorganism must be isolated from a diseased organism and grown in pure culture well a virus of course cannot replicate on its own because it's not alive it's not living so it has to replicate inside a host cell Two, the cultured microorganism should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. Three, the microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated diseased experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. Four, the microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated diseased experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. Basically, you isolate a virus and you then introduce it into someone, they must get symptoms, and then you re-isolate it, introduce it into someone else, and they must get the same symptoms. And then you can say, okay, that's caused the disease. And apparently Robert Koch said that he didn't totally agree with Koch's postulates later on in his life, but that's not the point. The point is, these have been used since 1890 to prove infectious agents cause a disease. These are kind of industry standard in the medical establishment and in terms of COVID-19 none of these criteria have been met. There's no scientific evidence that COVID-19 actually exists as I said before. There's another example of the discovery process and that is exosomes which I talk about in episode 70. When you put all this together it all adds up to a giant scam of a fake pandemic and that's exactly what COVID-19 is. care homes. This is in the Daily Mail. 
two care home workers die of coronavirus, including mother of four, 54, who was forced to say goodbye to her children over the phone because of lockdown laws, and 26-year-old who leaves behind daughter, aged three. Two more care home workers have tragically lost their lives to coronavirus, as Britain's death toll of those fighting against the virus on the front line continues to mount. Tributes have been paid to mother of four, Patricia Crowhurst, who passed away at James Cook University Hospital in Middlesbrough, while in North London, 26-year-old Sonja Kagan, or Sonia Kagan, tragically lost a battle, leaving a three-year-old daughter behind. Patricia, 54, from Teesville, provided a one-on-one support for residents in several care homes across Teesside, that's in the north of England, for people around the world. Her husband, Arthur, 60, and her four children, Melissa, 27, Fionn, 25, Carius, 20, and Killam, 18, interesting names, had to say goodbye to her over the phone as strict COVID-19 rules prevented them from entering the hospital. Rules, by the way, to protect people from a virus that doesn't exist and never has been proved to exist. The article goes on. Patricia's eldest daughter, Melissa, said her mum had worked as a carer for 20 years and was committed to her job. Melissa, a teacher, said she cared so deeply for her job and she knew what it could mean and she still went every day. She knew the risks going into them and she still carried on going because she wanted to be there for her clients who she looked after. She knew how scared they were and wanted to comfort them. Patricia was employed by nursing and care agency Northeast Nursing. Melissa believes her mum contracted the virus during her work. She said that she stopped work when she started with a cough, which appeared around a week before she developed the temperature. Well, she's working in a care home with elderly people who have lots of other health complications because they're elderly. But it must be coronavirus that she contracted, even though coronavirus has never been proven to exist. The article continues. Her family then had to call an ambulance for her on Wednesday, April the 8th, as she was struggling to breathe. Patricia was put on a ventilator on Friday, April the 10th, but sadly lost a battle with the virus on Tuesday. Melissa added, the week she started to develop a cough when she was... She was complaining she had to take a week off work. The last time we saw her was when she got put in the back of the ambulance. We FaceTimed her twice while she was in high dependency, but she couldn't really talk. She had an oxygen mask on. Every time we ran, they said she was stable and needed a high percentage of oxygen. The nurses were amazing. Even though my mum was sedated, they held her mobile up so we could talk to her and say a final goodbye. Melissa added her mum, Patricia, had previously sought medical advice to see if she was at risk of the virus as she suffered from mild asthma and diabetes. See, that's the point. We hear that people with underlying health conditions are most at risk of the virus, but what in many cases actually is happening is people are dying of those other underlying health conditions, not least because they're not dying of COVID-19 coronavirus because it doesn't exist. And if it does, where's the evidence? Where's the scientific evidence? The article continues. She said that her mum was told she could continue to work, and so she did in order to support her clients. Melitz said she had regular clients that she would go and see in the same care home. She specialised in people with dementia, and she was very good at making sure they felt safe enough to be in that care home when they didn't understand what's going on. She was the life and soul of the party, and she didn't realise she was. She would do anything for anybody. She was there for everybody. She had a lot of life left to live. I think she would have done it all over again so she could be with her residents who were scared. She was just an angel who didn't have her wings, and now she does. I'm so proud of her. In London, the article continues, Sonia Kagan, a carer at the Elizabeth Lodge Care Home in Enfield, died. She was described as a gentle and kind-hearted woman who gave her life to others. A GoFundMe page has been set up in her memory to both go towards funeral costs and help support her young daughter, three now being looked after by a grieving mother, Ace. And the name of the GoFundMe is Care Worker Sonia Kagan, 26, loses COVID-19 battle. If you search that on GoFundMe, you'll find the page.
The article continues, the UK recorded 847 new coronavirus deaths in hospitals on Friday, taking the total to 14,576. Well, it's quite unusual for there to be lots of empty hospital beds, and for hospitals to be empty. If anything, there's often a bed shortage. Migration into Britain has led to recurring problems of not enough hospital beds. I talk about migration in episode 40. The effect on the National Health Service when the full impact of the lockdown comes to bear is going to be genuinely overwhelming. Of course, we're told there are war zone hospitals now, even though hospitals are empty, but it's going to be genuinely overwhelming when the effect of the lockdowns is seen because people are not going to hospital now. How will the NHS be funded when people have lost businesses and livelihoods? I've talked before about the agenda to stretch the NHS to breaking point, and this is one reason why the NHS's failings in recent times have been highlighted in the media, because the agenda is to privatise the NHS. People are dying from other health conditions when hospitals are empty. People are being discouraged from going to hospital because they might catch or spread the virus when there's hardly anyone in the hospitals anyway. But if people go, they'll see the hospitals are empty. And the more you see that, the more the scam falls apart. Bodies being dragged out of homes into a truck or hearse. Seemingly, the situation is worse than reality because it's so unusual to see this happening regularly. More people are going to die from the lockdown than the virus, even if it was real. The NHS get their information from the government, and the government gets their information from the World Health Organization. And advisors and experts like Professor Neil Ferguson, Bill Gates, Chris Whitty, and Johns Hopkins University. So do the media. Silicon Valley, through the social media giants, are censoring any content challenging the official narrative of the World Health Organization, Bill Gates, and NHS. Bill Gates is the owner of Microsoft, although he stepped down from his role at Microsoft just before COVID-19 broke out. What we're told is COVID-19. Where is Microsoft? Silicon Valley. Who owns Silicon Valley? Military intelligence. Who owns military intelligence? The cult. Bill Gates is a cult-owned frontman. Bill Gates is talking about the potential of a second wave. The second wave will be caused by the lockdown with people not going to hospital, as I've said, and the lack of treatment and murder of elderly people in care homes. And when the effect of all that comes to light, then that can be highlighted as COVID-19 cases, the second wave of COVID-19. Look at all these people who are ill. And the effect of 5G, especially 5G at 60 gigahertz, which seems to have an impact on the body's ability to absorb oxygen. A lot of people would obviously be impacted by that and they can be designated COVID-19 cases. The precedent has been set because of this lockdown to go straight into lockdown the next time without incrementally moving it on and on with increasing measures and increasingly draconian measures. Locking down healthy people is not quarantine but house arrest. Elderly people, of course, have various underlying health complications which they're dying of naturally, not as a result of a virus hitting a weakened immune system. Elderly people who the lockdown in Britain was called to protect, so we're told, are being encouraged to sign DNR forms, do not resuscitate forms, and those elderly people will be recorded as COVID-19 deaths. People in hospitals are being treated disgracefully, those that are in there, and when they die, they're being classified as COVID-19. Everywhere you look, there's lies and exaggeration with the official story of COVID-19, and if we were dealing with a real virus, there would be no need to do anything but tell the truth. The more people know the truth, the sooner we can bring an end to this madness. And the final subject this week is retail. 
this is in the Daily Mail. Women's fashion chains, Oasis and Warehouse, collapse into administration, putting 2,000 jobs at risk across 92 UK stores. High street fashion chains, Oasis and Warehouse, have collapsed into administration, putting 2,000 workers at risk across 92 branches and 437 concessions. The chains are expected to appoint auditor Deloitte to run their administration after coronavirus lockdown forced them to shut their 90 UK stores. The brands, which are owned by the failed Icelandic bank Kopthing, also have 437 concessions in department stores, including Debenhams and Selfridges. And thousands of jobs at Debenhams may be at risk after the High Court ruled its administrators to be liable for furloughed staff's full wages. Debenhams appointed administrators last week for the second time in the past 12 months. The retailer's 142 UK stores remain closed in line with government guidance and the company said it will work to reopen and trade as many stores as possible when the restrictions are lifted. The collapse of Oasis and Warehouse today comes three weeks after they started discussions with prospective buyers following an approach from an unnamed company. The businesses have been struggling along with many of the UK's high street retailers which have been forced to close all their stores due to the virus outbreak. Deal talks with prospective buyers fell through with the uncertainty caused by the pandemic thought to have made a sale impossible to conclude, reported Sky News. The administrators are expected to furlough most of the employees soon after talks began with potential buyers. Employees at Debenhams are also facing an uncertain future after today's High Court ruling. Around 13,000 of its employees in the UK are currently being paid under the government's job retention scheme, which covers 80% of the salaries of furlough staff up to £2,500 a month. Administrator FRP says it is necessary to mothball the business during the COVID-19 pandemic in order to seek to rescue it in the months to come, and that it wants to continue paying furlough staff under the JRS. However, lawyers representing FRP said it may be forced to make a large part of the significant number of employees of Debenhams redundant if it is responsible for staff wage liabilities. The administrators have pledged the High Court for a declaration that the contracts of staff who have been furloughed prior to their appointment would not be adopted by FRP. Under insolvency law, if an employee's contract is adopted, wage liabilities enjoy super priority status, meaning they are payable before the expenses of the administration and the claims of creditors. So FRP applied for a declaration that any potential wage liability should be limited to the 80% of wages which will be reimbursed by the government under the GRS. But following a remote hearing on Wednesday, Mr Justice Trower refused to make a declaration saying, I think it is likely that the participation by companies in administration in the JRS and the payment of equivalent amounts to be furloughed employees means that the contracts of employment will have been adopted by the administrators. During the hearing, FRP's barrister Tom Smith QC said that if the contracts were considered to have been adopted, the administrators would have to decide whether they are able to adopt the employment contracts of all or some of the furloughed employees, or, as seems more likely, will be compelled to make the majority of them redundant. He added that such a decision would have to be made before the end of the 14-day grace period from the appointment of administrators on April the 9th. Mr Smith said that unsurprisingly, Debenham's business has been very severely impacted by the government-required closure of its retail estate. He added that some limited trading currently continues online, amounting to just under 20% of Debenham's usual trading revenues, but even that trading is threatened with closure as a result of the COVID-19 measures. Mr Smith submitted, There is significant uncertainty as to when this will change when an exit from administration can be achieved. He said Debenham's workforce will have an important role in ensuring the viability of the future business to continue trading in the future. But he added that FRP are unlikely to be able to justify continuing to employ the furloughed employees if there is exposure to liabilities for wages or salary, enjoying super priority over other claims over and above those that will be reimbursed under the GRS. 
the court heard that the total cost of Debenham's salary and benefits payments to employees was approximately £18 million a month prior to employees being put on furlough, and the company has sufficient cash available to make the required payments for a period of at least the next payroll period and possibly further periods. Miwar next returned to selling clothes online after the retailer put extra safety measures in place to ensure warehouse staff can work safely. But by 9am, the website had closed again, saying it had already received all the orders it could process for the day, but would return tomorrow. The retail giant closed its online operations in late March amid the coronavirus crisis following criticism from staff who felt unsafe at work. Behind the scenes, bosses have been upgrading warehouse space and limiting workers to accommodate the government's distancing measures. The coronavirus pandemic is expected to change the look of high streets forever, with famous names like Laura Ashley having already gone. Many national chains are unlikely to reopen hundreds of stores which were already struggling as a result of a shift to online shopping. Many town centres will have to switch their focus towards leisure, entertainment and housing, with shopping streets turned to residential use. The number of visits to high street shopping malls, parks and other leisure resorts dropped by 85% as the lockdown cut in the second half of last month. Debenham said its Irish business, which runs 11 stores with around 1,400 staff, will cease trading. It will continue to trade online in Ireland, the UK and Denmark. Construction too is suffering, while consumer confidence has dropped to the most rapid rate since the darkest days of the 1970s. The Centre for Economics and Business Research has predicted that the lockdown is costing the economy £2.4 billion a day, equivalent to 31% of national output. Elsewhere on the high street footwear chain, Clarks said last week a small number of its 347 stores may never open again once the lockdown is over. The crisis on the high street has already claimed the likes of restaurant chain Coluccio's and homeware store Bright House. Figures also showed how the rot caused by widespread closures and social distancing measures were spreading into manufacturing and construction. The sales of new cars fell 44% in the last month. The sales of new cars fell 44%, according to figures from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders. There were 203,000 fewer new cars registered in March compared to the same month, 2019, after coronavirus forced the closure of showrooms. This marked the most dramatic decline for the key month of March, when new number plates were released since the late 1990s. The UK's automotive industry was already struggling from failing sales blamed on weak consumer confidence and confusion over what fuel technology to buy. Car manufacturers, including Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover and Vauxhall, have mothballed their factories in the UK and across the world. At the same time, confidence among UK consumers, already low due to political uncertainty over Brexit, plunged at the most rapid rate since records began in 1974. The numbers reflect the concerns of economists who have said the economy may be shrinking at a faster rate than the Great Depression of the 1930s. And there's a few other sections here. 295,000 small firms are waiting on loans. Just 4,200 companies have been able to get the government's emergency bailout loans out of 300,000 applicants. The worrying figure has emerged despite the scheme already being overhauled once when firms complained they could not access the cash. Business owners have warned the failure means they could go bust. Around £800 million has been handed out under the package, a figure which pales in comparison with £146 billion provided to 725,000 firms in the US. Lord Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, said something has gone wrong. The economy will only recover if we can keep businesses running and able to pick up the reins when this crisis is over. Banks have been overwhelmed by demand since the launch of the coronavirus business interruption loans scheme. They have been accused of refusing loans due to complex eligibility criteria. More than two thirds of the loans, 2,500 total have been approved by state and bank rbs business secretary alok sharma said we have set this up at pace and everyone is working around
Another section, Chef Yotam Otelengi calls for a national timeout on rent to protect UK restaurants. Top Chef Yotam Otelengi has warned that restaurants are being threatened by landlords with eviction for unpaid rent during the coronavirus lockdown. Mr Otelengi told BBC Radio 4's programme, the biggest worry that we have is rent. When corona started and we were asked to close our doors, which is totally understandable because of safety, nobody really addressed the issue of rents. Many, many have not been paying rents. Others have got into arrangements with the landlords, but this has not been solved. Some landlords have been threatening to prosecute and other legal actions against the tenants at restaurants in such a time because they are not paying, paying their rents. And landlords, many of them rely on the rent to pay their own debts. He is calling on the government to give restaurants a litigation ceasefire with a debt enforcement moratorium for six months in which credit action is banned. Mr Ottolenghi said this would mean business owners cannot be litigated against to pay rent and the same for landlords who cannot pay their mortgages. He has also suggested a national timeout of nine months rent-free from April to December in which landlords would also be compensated. Final section. Nearly 3,000 gyms and leisure centres face closure with loss of 100,000 jobs as landlords use loopholes to threaten eviction for unpaid rent during lockdown. Nearly 3,000 gyms and leisure centres face the threat of closure after landlords threaten them with eviction for unpaid rent during the coronavirus lockdown. Up to 100,000 jobs can now be at risk with Trade Body UK active calling for urgent action to protect places of exercise which remain shut as the pandemic continues. French Fresh legislation to protect commercial tenants was brought in last month, but it does not stop landlords forcing them to pay rent withheld due to the lockdown. UK Active Chief Executive Hugh Edwards told how taking legal action such as issuing statutory demands and winding up orders was entirely disproportionate. He said yesterday, a worrying number have decided to pursue statutory demand notices or winding up orders. We need the government to act now to direct within the act that landlords cannot do this. With 2,800 gyms at risk of permanent closure and 100,000 jobs at stake, time is of the essence. Section 82 of the Coronavirus Act 2020, introduced on March 25th, intends to help protect commercial tenants by banning the forfeiture of commercial leases until June 30th or longer if the government deems necessary for non-payment of rent. But it does not stop landlords taking actions such as rent arrears recovery, making a, making a debt claim, issuing a statutory demand or starting wind proceedings. UK Active therefore wants the government to amend the Act so landlords cannot pursue legal action and introduce financial support for them for a rent holiday. In one case, David Lloyd Leisure asked the landlord for a waiver of rent due on March 25th until it could reopen its clubs, but the landlord replied by treating, threatening legal action. The change chief executive Glenn Earlham told BBC News the situation is unfortunately entirely outside of our control. We want to work together with landlords to ensure we can survive this pandemic and emerge with businesses able to continue to pay rent and other costs in the future. And Pure Gym Chief Executive Humphrey Cobbold said time is of the absolute essence given that proceedings such as statutory demands and winding up orders threaten to force companies into insolvency within days of being issued. Well, I've said since pay-per-view began in February 2018 that the plan is for a Hunger Games society where everyone in the global population will be in poverty except the elite less than 1% in society. Global society in the end, the cult. Since this so-called pandemic began, small and medium-sized business has been absolutely annihilated, as was always going to happen, because unless a business is a giant corporation like Amazon, where funding is always available because they're an elite operation, just like the internet giants in Silicon Valley, created by military intelligence. As I detail in the pay-per-view book, Pay-per-view in print, which is now available at pay-per-view.uk. It's available now for Kindle, Paperwhite readers, Remarkable readers and PC readers as a PDF, if you're reading on PC. But unless a business is 
an elite operation then unless they get orders in and make a profit as opposed to undercutting smaller businesses which need to make a profit while you're building up your business which is what Amazon have done smaller businesses need to make a profit to survive so when a lockdown is called and smaller businesses especially retail are ordered to close or close through fear of threats to their staff's health and customers health then eventually those businesses are going to close forever now what has this lockdown done destroyed small business as per the elite's agenda for the Hunger Games Society. I talk about this in episode 32, this agenda. Now, some businesses are eligible for government payouts and there's a push for universal credit for the population because of independent livelihoods being destroyed, not least smaller business owners. And the universal credit or guaranteed income of whatever form comes with strings attached, which stipulate that you must keep the government happy, basically including your business, or risk not receiving your guaranteed income. I've said before that the cult's agenda seeks an end to private travel, and now we're seeing sales of private travel dropping, as this article talks about. I talk about this in episode 35, which is called Technocracy, and that's relevant because the structure of society planned is a technocracy, a world run by technology, billionaires like Bill Gates, technocrat, and other unelected technocrats. The mention of private home ownership is also relevant because I've said before, the plan is for eventually people to live in what the United Nations, of which the World Health Organization is an agency, calls human settlement zones. The world I've been researching and communicating since 2007 and through pay-per-view since February 2018 is now unfolding at a rate of knots and the answer is information communication. People accept these long-planned changes in global society because they accept the official narrative. While that remains the case, the agenda will continue. While people question and communicate information challenging the official narrative, less people will accept the new society. The less chance there is of it happening. The answer is down to us. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.